0: Well, good morning. morning. I've heard it said, and I believe it's true, that if you want to take something really simple and just absolutely ruin it with complexity, the quickest route is to ask the government to run it, right? It's true, isn't it? It's true because we are the government. Humanity is the issue. Uh, humanity. We have this, uh, this, this indefatigable desire for complexity. Uh, we, we take everything that's simple and, and we, we we clutter it with, with rules and, and with uh, facets that that no one would ever think of. I mean, just look at professional sports. Right? It it, it, it it's almost unwatchable at this state. The games we play, the lives we live, we we tend to clutter those as well, right? I remember when I I went away to college, 17 years old, uh, me and my my college roommate poured all of our earthly belongings into his VW Bug. And that included his 130-watt guitar amp. Huge, enormous, took up half the back seat. Had to have it, right? It, later on in college, I moved from one place to another, and, and by that point, I had my own car, and it took two loads. And then when I, I left college and, and moved to a different city, I had to borrow a church van, and I filled the whole van up with all my junk. Then I got married, <laughs> and I discovered moving trucks, <laughs> right? Right? And the second time we moved after we got married, it, it was multiple vehicles. As I remember, it was a it, it was a long trailer, it was a moving truck and several pickup loads as well. Then we got kids, <laughs> multiple trucks, right? And everything gets so much more complex as we as we gather more and more stuff. It's 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 just who we are. It's it's what we do. We tend to add layer after layer of complexity. And yet there are some things that just should be simple, like breathing. Breathing should be simple, right? And and yet, if you think about the fact that you are breathing, some of you, will begin to have problems with breathing. Some of you will, just because you begin to think about it, you'll begin to hyperventilate and you'll begin breathing too much and and, and you'll drop like a fly. And others, others, as you begin to think about the fact that you're breathing, y- your anxiety begins to increase out of the fear that if you quit thinking about the fact that you're breathing, that you'll quit breathing if you quit thinking about it. So don't quit thinking about it. But you can't live like that, can you? Breathing should be just automatic. It should be simple. Just in and out and in and out. Prayer should be like that. Prayer should be simple and it should be automatic. It shouldn't be this complex and intimidating thing because it's something that is so very important, so vital that we can't afford to let it become complicated. Because when it becomes complicated, we tend to not do it. Well, where we pick up this morning in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And in four short verses, Jesus lays out a two-part template for prayer that invites us to simply come to God and to to receive from him absolutely everything that we need. You know who's worse than the government when it comes to making things complicated? Pastors. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Uh, it's my hope, it's my heart's desire that this morning we would I wouldn't do that to you, that we could look at what Jesus has made so very simple and just keep it simple. Uh, my hope is that, is that what we look at this morning, it would be so straightforward that it would have an immediate impact on your praying today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after that it would be something that would begin to shape our communion with our God. Well, let's do this. Let's take a look at our passage. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We're going to look at just the first four verses. Will you do this as you find Luke 11? Will you stand? I'll read the passage, but I'd really like you to follow along in your own Bible. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Here's what Luke writes regarding Jesus. He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored and holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us, and do not bring us into temptation. Let's pray. Lord, we, we just simply want to understand, to comprehend, and to receive what it is that you've said. I pray, Lord, that this morning your Holy Spirit would be our teacher Lord, that we might not only understand, but we might be changed by what it is that we have read. Work in this time. Speak to us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The sense we get as we read the four Gospels is is that Jesus very often prayed early in the morning or late at night it seems that it was a normal thing for jesus to seek to step away from his disciples to to find a time and a place where he could get alone and and be free from distractions and 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 meet with the father sometimes he would be praying about decisions that he was facing like when he was faced with the task of choosing out of his larger group of followers who would become the the 12, who would be those closer disciples. Other times, he would simply be pouring out his heart, as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane there on the night before he went to the cross. But Jesus didn't just pray before the big events. It wasn't just at the exceptional times. It seems that Jesus prayed often. It it was just a normal part of his day, a normal part of his life. And so Luke records for us there, beginning in verse 1, that when Jesus returns from praying in a certain place, just part of his normal routine, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples, won't you teach us how it is that you pray. Now, I want you to notice here uh, that we don't read about the disciples asking Jesus to teach them how to do that thing with the the fish and the loaves because that was really cool and that could come in handy, right? Or or, or Jesus, will you teach us how it is that you calmed the storm when we were out on the boat? They, They don't ask him that. They don't even ask him, Jesus, teach us how to, how to preach to the crowds. But they do ask how to pray. And notice that they ask him how to pray when he is returning from a time of private prayer. It, it wasn't after some great public prayer. It wasn't after some eloquently worded uh, prayer speech that had been given at the temple Uh, there in Jerusalem, but rather it was as Jesus is returning from a time of prayer where his disciples most likely had not heard or seen what that time of prayer had been like. It was then that Jesus' disciples said, we want you to teach us to do that thing that you do when you're with God. They didn't see what he had done, but I think they could see the ramifications of it. They could see the results of his time in prayer. They saw firsthand the effect of Jesus' praying. When Jesus prayed, it was real, and it was intimate, And it was vital. It wasn't just a ritual. It wasn't the recitation of someone else's words. There was real communication, actual connection that took place. It it was what we call communion with God. There was a a, a connection that happened. And so Jesus' disciples asked him, teach us. Show us how you do what you do. And so in verse 2, he said to them, Whenever you pray. Now, before we really get into what Jesus says here, I-, I wanna remind you, this isn't the only time that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. In, in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew records for us a- another time that they asked him to teach them how to pray, and Jesus it gave to them this same basic outline. Now, he doesn't use the same words in the prayer that he teaches them there, but he he does use the same basic form. Uh, Jesus begins and he he says, listen, address God as your father and, and pray for his name to be honored and glorified. Pray for God's kingdom to be established, for God's desire to become a reality in your life. Pray as well for forgiveness. Pray for God to give you everything that you need and pray for God to keep you from temptation. Jesus doesn't use the exact words that he uses in Luke, but there in Matthew 6, he does cover the same ground. I don't think that what Jesus is doing here is giving us a word-for-word prayer that we are supposed to recite. That would go against not only how he taught this, but the fact that in, in Matthew, there in the verse right before he gives them this prayer, he tells his disciples not to babble like the Gentiles, not to heap up empty phrases or use vain repetitions. Don't just spout out some memorized prayer. But rather, here are the concepts. Here are the the topics for you to dwell on as you spend time with the Father. Jesus says there in verse 2, Father, your name be honored as holy. It's interesting, Jesus begins with an unusual blend of intimacy and respect. Intimacy and respect. He refers to God as Father and invites us to refer to God as Father as well. That indicates a relationship of great intimacy and connectedness between us and the God to whom we are praying. Now, the Gospels are written in the Greek language, but we assume that Jesus was speaking in the Aramaic language as he spoke with his disciples. That would have been the normal thing in that day and in that place. And so we think that probably Jesus would have used the word Abba. Uh, The Aramaic word Abba, the word that a son or daughter of any age, whether they be an adult or a toddler, would have used in addressing their father as something akin to our English dad, or as most translations phrase it, father. And so Jesus invites us into a connection, a relationship with God that, that communicates great privilege and intimacy, a, a position of very favored status. Understand this as we come to prayer. We are not praying to a distant and cold deity who would just as soon squash us as bless us. But rather, we are crying out to one who loves us and cares for us like no other. Remember that. Remember that as you come to prayer. Remember that God loves you. Remember that no one loves you more than he does. God loves you so much. He loves you when you're not doing anything wrong. He also loves you when you're awake. (laughs) He loves you. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his. It's based on what it is that he has done for you. You see, God proved his love for you where? At the cross, it was at the cross that 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 position of privilege, that position of intimacy was purchased for you. Listen to how the apostle Paul describes this in Galatians chapter four. Paul says this, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that. Okay, here Paul is going to tell us why Christ came, why it is that he redeemed us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Wow. Christ came so that you could be welcomed into the family, so that you would not be a stranger, so that you would not be an unwelcome guest, but you would be family, that you would be welcomed in and... Because you are sons, Paul says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out what? Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Friends, as we consider coming to God in prayer, start here. Start by remembering that you come from a position of great advantage. He loves you. He loves you. And he desires to hear what you need. And even better, he desires to provide for you all that you need. And yet, Jesus ties this position of great advantage, this position of great privilege, he ties it to a response of great respect. Jesus said that we should pray, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your name be honored as holy. In other words, though we we have a a great position of privilege, yet it is not a situation of entitlement. We don't come with an attitude of we deserve this or, or, or God is our buddy. There's no jocularity in our approach to God. We have been given great favor by God, but he is still God Almighty. Do we understand that? We have been welcomed into his family as his children, but he is still holy and righteous and beyond what we can even imagine. He is still God Almighty, and he is still deserving of our utmost respect and our greatest reverence. He isn't the big guy. He's not the man upstairs. He is your maker. He is your savior. He is your judge. And he is your redeemer. He is God almighty. He is still absolutely holy. And he is powerful beyond our comprehension. His name is holy. He is God. He's God. And so as we come to him, we begin in a position of submission. We come to him not giving him his marching orders, but seeking ours from him. We begin partway through verse 2 by praying, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Friends, the best thing that we can ever ask God for is to do what he desires in our life. The best thing we can ever ask God for is to have his way in our life, our circumstances, our situation. The best thing we can ask for is his kingdom to be established in our world. Because he is wise beyond our ability to understand. And he is good beyond all question. And his will is always what is best. Even. Even when we don't understand it. And that happens, doesn't it? That happens all the time. There are times when we just, we don't understand what God is doing. We don't understand the way that he, he answers our prayers. There are times where we're just absolutely sure what God is gonna do, but then he doesn't do it. He does something else instead. Even then, the best thing that we can ever pray for is for the establishment of his kingdom in our lives. Because when his kingdom is established, it means that that hearts will be surrendered to him. The people will get saved and become disciples, and they will begin to shape their lives, as Jesus talks about it in Mark chapter 8, that they will begin to deny self and take up their cross and follow him, and that their lives will begin to be shaped by him. Jesus tells us that before we begin to pray about what it is that we want God to do for us, that we need to pray about what God desires to do in us and through us. And if we'll start there, if we'll start there, then as God's name is honored and his kingdom is established, In our prayers, we will begin to see and to understand and experience prayer in a way that we have never experienced it before. Prayer will no longer just be a lever that we try to use to manipulate God into doing what it is that we want him to do. But rather, prayer will become the doorway through which we begin to be able to participate in accomplishing what it is that God is doing in this world, C.S. Lewis put it this way: He said, "I pray because I must." He says, "Prayer doesn't change God; it changes me." Oh, and in that—that—that's—that's that's what we need. Could you imagine how awful things would be if God did everything you asked Him to do? Aren't you so glad he regularly says no to your stupid requests? <laughs> Maybe it's just me, but there's so many things that I've prayed for, oh God, please do please do this. And then a month later I'm going, oh, thank you for not doing that. I'm an idiot. Why don't I just ask you, God, you know my heart, you know I'm stupid. To keep the leash short. You know? To just do what you're about and show me how to be a part of what it is that you're doing in this world. We want want our prayers to begin to mimic the prayers of our heroes of the faith. Uh, Men like Abraham and Moses or Samuel and Isaiah, uh, these Old Testament heroes, each one of which, by the way, at some point in their life stood before God and said, here am I. Use me. Here am I, God. Use me for what you desire. God, instead of me coming here and saying, God, here am I, serve me. I'm coming to you and I'm saying, here I am, Lord. Use me for whatever it is that you desire to accomplish in my world. But we do also come to God to ask him to do the things that we need him to do for us. So the first half of this prayer it's it's about our relationship with God and and us saying God do what you desire in this world uh, accomplish your desire in me. But the second half is it's about the living of our lives and so he says in verse 3 give us each day our daily bread. It makes me think of Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the psalmist writes this, God is our shepherd. God is our shepherd. And so since God is our shepherd, he says, we have what we need. We have what we need. If God is our shepherd, if we are his sheep and and we will, as his sheep, follow him out daily, he will lead us to the green pastures and to the still waters. He will guide us to the right paths, He will renew our lives. And even as we go through the darkest valleys, we won't have to be afraid because he will be there with us and his rod and his staff will comfort us. You see, he's our shepherd. And so as his sheep, we look to him to provide for us all that it is that we need. Dear friends, whatever your needs are, uh, be they material or emotional, uh, financial or metaphysical, oh, whatever it is that you are in need of, you can turn to the Lord and ask him to provide it for you. We find this difficult to do. We find it difficult to, to just simply look to the Lord, the temptation is to begin to look to other people, right? It's like, why should I pray to God uh, to do this thing for me when I know that Eric can just do it for me? And so what I'll do is I'll go to Eric and say, Eric, I'd really like you to pray about this this need that I have for me. I just have this prayer request. And, And I'll remind him about my prayer request several times through the day until he's just so sick of me talking about it that he'll just give it to me. That's not trusting God. That's not looking to God. But you know, every road has a ditch on either side. And if we don't crash into the ditch on the side of uh, of seeking to manipulate people into doing what we want, we will refuse to let God use someone in our life. Or we'll give our our request to God and we'll pray about something and, and we'll say, God, this is really what I need and I'm just looking for you to provide it for me. And then some brother or sister from the body will come to us and say, you know, I just really feel the letter of the Lord to do this for you. We're like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm trusting the Lord. <laughs> well, I think it was the Lord who told me that I should. No, 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 I'm not trusting a man, I'm just trusting God. And so, you know, you die and you get to heaven and you say, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? And he said, listen, I sent 14 people to you and they were all gonna, why did you refuse them? We can do that. We don't, want, we don't want a person to be in that position of ministering to us. We don't want to humble ourselves and allow others to care for us. And we need to do that as well. We need to get our requests to the Lord. We need to put our hope in him and then allow him to meet those needs however he sees fit. Give us each day our daily bread. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins. That really is more than anything what we need. That is the greatest need that any of us has. We are all in desperate need of forgiveness. Maybe you don't realize it, but you are, because if you do not receive forgiveness from God, then then it is on your shoulders, it is, it is all yours to pay that infinite price for your sin. On that day when we stand before God for every thought we've had, every word we've spoken, every action that we've, we've made or failed to make. But God offers us forgiveness he offers us forgiveness, and only God can offer us that because only Jesus has paid the debt on our behalf. Only Jesus has surrendered himself as that perfect and sinless sacrifice. Only Jesus has, has, has paid my sin debt by dying on the cross in my place. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3. He said, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. I am so thankful that the righteous one, the sinless one, that the Savior gave himself as a perfect sacrifice for me. And Peter says that that he did it once for all, that having once received God's gracious forgiveness, uh, that we are saved, we are justified before God by what Christ has done on our behalf. And yet the sense here is is that we are to continue to pray asking for God's forgiveness. But it's not in the sense that, that we need to get saved again and again and again. I mean, we would never get done. But rather, it's that we continue to seek his continual cleansing of our hearts and our minds. And we continue to seek his refreshing and empowering that he gives us by his Holy Spirit. I think it's really what James is talking about in James 4.8, where he says, draw near to God so that he will draw near to us. And in order to draw near to God, we need to ask him to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts. Here's what James is saying. He said, come near to God and he will come near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. But that's, that's something that we need to ask the Lord to do for us. When we do that, when we receive that forgiveness and allow it to soak into our very bones, we become changed, don't we? When that guilt, that condemnation is gone and we know that we're forgiven. We're not just changed, we're we're transformed. There's a a change that takes place deep within us that is supernaturally enabled and allows us not only to know that We can enter into God's presence, but it allows us to do something else, to begin to forgive those who have sinned against us. Oh, look at the second half of verse four. For we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. This transformation that only God can do in our hearts, this transformation that takes place as we receive his forgiveness, it, it allows us, in fact, it changes us so that we can't help but to forgive those who have harmed us. Now here, I, I want to caution you to consider this deeply and carefully because Jesus binds these two things, the forgiveness of our sin and our forgiveness of others. Jesus binds these two things together in ways that honestly should probably make us a bit uncomfortable. Jesus ties our forgiveness of others to his forgiveness of us, to the point that in Matthew six, he phrases it this way, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's what Jesus says we're to pray. God, I want you to forgive me just like I forgive others. That is a terrible prayer. If you are not completely and utterly forgiving everyone for everything all the time. I mean, seriously, this is a terrible prayer. If you have decided that some people just don't deserve your forgiveness, don't ask God to forgive you like that because you don't deserve it either. Or maybe you've you've just been hurt so badly that you think that, you know, I've just been hurt so deeply that God excuses my lack of forgiveness. Oh, don't pray this prayer. Don't ask God to forgive you like that because your sin has hurt him far more deeply than anything that we have ever experienced. If you're that person who forgives in theory, but you continue to hold others' sin against them. Don't pray that prayer. And yet, this is the prayer that Jesus tells us to pray. What Jesus is saying here is that unforgiveness is just simply not an option for us. We cannot allow bitterness or anger or resentment to be at home in our hearts. This world is messed up, isn't it? It's just life is messy. And you get hurt living life out there or in here. People sin against you. And so at times, bitterness and anger and resentment will come across your heart. You can't let them move in. It's keep on moving, buddy. You're not making bed here. You're not staying here. You're not welcome here. You're going to feel those things. You're going to experience those emotions. But you can't give yourself to it. You can't let yourself settle there. You can't become content in your unforgiveness. So what do you do? Well, God has forgiven us. And he has given us the ability to forgive others. And so there's really three steps that you can take. The first step is just simply to admit that you feel what you feel. Oh, I'm not unforgiving. No, no, no. Oh, I forgave them, that jerk. (laughs) Admit it. Admit. You're still holding it against them. There's some bitterness, some, some... some feelings there that you you're just not letting go of this you're still holding them in contempt second step confess to god that that is sin confess to god that it isn't just a wound it isn't just inconvenient it isn't just in process it's sin when I don't forgive you, it's sin. And thirdly, and here's the wonderful part of all this, ask the Lord to heal your heart. And here's what's beautiful. You know how the Lord does this? John says to us this. He says, we love because he first loved us, right? Right? So the the way that we have love for others is by uh, coming to know the love of God for us more deeply, more intimately. So too, from what Jesus says here, I have to conclude that the way that we become able to forgive others is by more deeply marinating in Christ's forgiveness of us. God, heal my heart. God, make me understand more deeply. Make me understand more completely your forgiveness of me. And as I begin to live without condemnation, as I begin to live free of guilt, washed by the blood of the Savior, I find this ability that I don't understand that that, that, that bitterness and anger and resentment becomes slippery. I'm having a hard time holding on to it. I'm just moving on because I know that I've been forgiven and that I've been cleansed and that the Lord is working in me. And as I allow him to, he gives me that ability to forgive others as well. Well, finally, there in verse 4, Jesus says that we are to pray and do not bring us into temptation. Do not bring us into temptation. You have to kind of wonder what what, what Jesus is talking about here because his scripture is very plain. Uh, in, in James chapter 1, it, we see very clearly that God tempts no one. James writes this. He says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So when Jesus says, do not bring us into temptation, he's not talking about, and God, I know you like to kind of mess with us. And, you know, God, I know you kind of like to try to make me sin so that then you can say, I told you so. No, that's what we do. That's not what God does, right? God doesn't tempt anyone. He's not saying, you know, ask God to not tempt you. No, you know, what he's saying here is God be a shield for us, protect us from temptation, keep us free from the temptation that uh, that is in this world around us. Hey, we are surrounded by those who wish to take us down, right? We've got the world we live in. This world is constantly seeking to tempt us to rebel against God. We have a very real enemy, We have a very real enemy of our souls who desires our destruction and who will seek to tempt us in order to cause us to be divided from the Lord because he knows that that is our destruction. And then I think the worst enemy of all, me, my flesh. My flesh, I am constantly battling that enemy within. And so I need to ask the Lord, help me. I'm outnumbered here. It's three to one. And, and, and I'm not up to it. And I don't measure up. And so, Lord, I need you to protect me. You know, Scripture does speak to this as well. We are to ask God to, to rescue us out of temptation, to protect us from it, to be our shield. It it also says it we're to flee from temptation, okay? And so it... Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, flee from these things, and then he says, and pursue instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. We're not supposed to just sit in a vat of temptation and see what happens. Well, let's see how this goes. Am I stronger than I was last week? Oh no, guess I'm not right? No, no, no. We're not supposed to just learn to be stronger against temptation. We're to flee from temptation. And not only are we to flee from temptation, but we are to instead pursue things that are good. It's like we're we're to be so busy in pursuing the things of the Lord. We don't have time for that stuff because we are so engaged in seeking out things that are going to draw us to him. Often we need to flee temptation literally. I can't tell you how many times people say, oh, I'm really struggling with this area of sin. Well, where are you encountering it? Oh, I go online. Okay, so get a dumb phone. Kill your internet. Done. Oh, no, we can't do that. We can't do that because we've got to have the- Flee Don't toy with temptation. It doesn't say toy. The Greek doesn't, oh, well, usually it means flee, but in this case, it means toy with it. No, it's not in the Greek. I don't know what is in the Greek, but it's not that. I promise you. Flee temptation. So Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. They wrote it down for us. He doesn't give us a prayer to recite word for word that's not the point there's nothing wrong with memorizing it's a good way to remember the form but he gives us a starting point he reminds us that we come to God calling him father that because of Christ we have a position of great privilege And he tells us that as we come to him, we should have a desire to see his name glorified, honored, that we should come with not only a sense of intimacy and acceptance, but also a very deep sense of reverence and awe. Yes, we are coming to one whom we can call father, but we are also coming to the one who created all that exists. And that we should come, not only with our needs, but also with a desire to see how it is that we would fit into what it is that he is doing. That we would begin by praying for God's kingdom to be established in our lives. And yes, we would come and we would ask him to give us today our daily bread, provide what we need. We look to you, Lord, as our shepherd. We're going we're gonna to follow you and wait for you to provide. We're going to look to you and you alone. We're going to ask you to forgive us. And Lord, as you forgive us, we pray for that transformational work within us that we can begin to forgive others as freely as you've forgiven us. And then we will pray that he will shield us from temptation, that he will keep us from falling into sin and spoiling the good that he has brought into our lives. Jesus gives us a template, a form, some topics, if you will, not. Not something to memorize and recite without your brain turned on, but rather something to guide you as you draw close to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that these simple things would be things that we would grab onto, that we would cling to, and, and Lord, that you would use powerfully in our lives. Lord, to draw us close to you. I pray, Lord, that just as Jesus' disciples saw the results of his time with you, that our time with you would be so impactful, that our time with you would be so life-changing, empowering, that others would want to know what it is that we're doing. We just point them to you. God, I pray that these simple things would have a profound impact upon how we see prayer and how we actually pray. God, it is so good for us to know how to pray, but God, I pray more than anything that we would pray, that we would take this knowledge and we would put it into practice and we would draw close to you day by day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.